So we're in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. I'd like to read it for you now. <clears throat> and after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because he saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain. There he sat down with his disciples. Verse 4. And now the Passover of the feast of the Jews was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, uh, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, How the people sit down. And now there was much grass in that place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Verse 11, And then he took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. <clears throat> and when they had eaten their fill. And he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was the largest mass miracle that Jesus performed. It is recorded in all four Gospels. Quite often, um, that isn't the case. Usually, uh, three of them have it, or one of them has it, or two, or that. But all four Gospels record this miracle. The miracle came sometime after the intense dialogue that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders in the South in John chapter 5. Of course, chapter 6 comes after 5. I know you guys know that. But <clears throat> remember John chapter 5, it shifts us from um, those who were believing that Jesus was the Son of God, they, they were believing that he was the Lamb of God, to now in chapter 5 to those who were rejecting that he was all those things. At the end of John 5, Jesus was rejected by the Jews in the South, the Jews being those religious leaders, because he was working on the Sabbath, and more um, inflammatory was that he called God his Father, making himself the Son of God, making himself equal with God. And John records for us how Jesus declared to these leaders that the rejection of him was not a rejection of him alone. It was a rejection of the, of the God that they actually claimed to be serving and following and believing. Jesus said in John 5, 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. <clears throat> and Jesus goes on to declare to them over and over that he and the Father are unified, that they are one. When you see Jesus operating and doing what he's doing, you're watching the Father at work. That was his point. And Jesus goes on and at the end of John 5. He says, we're the same in nature. We're one in nature. We're one in the will. We want the same things. 
We're one in our works, the works that I'm doing, the Father has already told me to do. We're one in works. We're one in love. We're one in sovereignly giving eternal life. We're also sovereign in judgment. When the Father's handed all judgment to Jesus, and Jesus says, I don't judge the way I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge the way the Father would have me to judge. In other words, there's such a unity between the Father and the Son that there is no difference. And the scriptures talk about this in Colossians and Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is the expressed image of God, the invisible God. You want to know what eternal God, who his spirit looks like, you look at his son, they are one and the same. Remember at the end of John, uh, Philip says, hey, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long that you don't recognize me? But if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. That's what Jesus is going for here. And so not only does he declare that he and the Father are one, and they also share in glory, by the way, he says, hey, there's witnesses to this. And this is Jesus' logic. Look at all the things that we're one in. Everything I'm doing, you're rejecting, not only me, you're rejecting, you're rejecting the Father. But there are witnesses, and John lays out the, these witnesses. This is John the Baptist. You enjoyed his light for a while, which tells us that John just passed away, just was executed. John the Baptist, and he says, no, if you don't believe John, just believe, believe me for the works I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. People are being healed miraculously. No one's just doing this stuff. This is Son of God in human form doing these things. People are healed. Demons are being cast out. People are being raised from the dead. There was a person who was raised from the dead, and this would go on and on. So not only John the Baptist, but the works, and he says, now here's the thing is, Here's the greater witness is my father, and the problem is you don't see him because his love is not in you, because you don't believe the son. So he points to the father who testified of the son at the baptism, at the transfiguration. And then he says, not only that, he says, the scriptures, you seek them because you think that in them you have life. You're great Bible students, but however you fail to recognize that they testify of me, Jesus says to the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel. And then he says, not only will the scriptures testify of you, Moses will testify in you. The one that you claim to follow, the big cheese, Moses, right? He's the one who will testify you of, against you on the day of judgment because he spoke of me. He said, if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me. Very powerful, persuasive argument. So Jesus wasn't backing away from controversy, was he? No, he was leaning into who he was, who God had called him uh, to proclaim. I will say that's kind of, he was Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and that's John's point in all of this. And they rejected Jesus in spite of all that evidence, in spite of all those things. They rejected the Son of God. And not only did they reject him, they, they persecuted him. And then they plotted to kill him. That's what was going on in the South. And they started a great PR campaign to smear Jesus' name all over the country. And so being, being rejected in the South, Jesus leaves the persecution and heads up north. And another thing, to, a important thing to note, which I just mentioned, that John doesn't mention, but the other Gospels do, is that it is right around this time that Jesus has this dialogue with the Pharisees that John the Baptist is executed by Herod, the Tetrarch. Herod Antipas, I believe. 
And so, it's for all these reasons John has been executed. Jesus is being persecuted. They're plotting to kill him. The pressure is on in the south that Jesus moves his ministry back up north into Galilee. So what do you think is going to happen in the north? Same, more the same. And that's where John's headed. And so, after, and so basically pick up in chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now it's, now it's really important kind of to know, and I know this is kind of like, this is not going to make your week or lose it, but there's a, there's a gap of time between chapter 5 and chapter 6. We don't know what it is, because in chapter 5, it says that, uh, basically in verse 1, it says that there was the Feast of the Jews, right? And then in chapter 6, verse 4, it says that, they, that there's, uh, the Passover was happening. We don't know which feast it was in chapter 5. If it was the Passover, that's Passover to Passover from 5 to 6. That's one year right? If not, then it's the Feast of Tabernacles or something else. It's a shorter amount of time. And so Jesus is persecuted, and that persecution develops over a period of time, and Jesus moves out of the area. And by the way, that's what the word persecute means. It means to make someone run, make them flee. That's what the word persecution means. And so Jesus is fleeing, not because he's scared, but because it was not his time. A year later, from this Passover, Jesus would march into Jerusalem and would be crucified, right? He would endure unto death. And so Jesus moves north. In verse 2, guess what happens? And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. By this time, Jesus' fame had spread everywhere. I mean, if there was social media, it would have been him at Jesus, right? I mean, it just would have been all over the place. And we already know the religious leaders know about him. We have that in John chapter 5. His fame is spread to him. We know that the governor of the area of Galilee knows about him. We know that from Matthew 14.1, Herod Antipas, that he heard of the fame of Jesus and he was worried because he thought that it might have been John the Baptist raised from the dead. <clears throat> and we know from that conversation that others were wondering, who is this Jesus? Who is he? So he's the talk of everywhere going on, people with different opinions. They said, is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is this Elijah? Is this the prophet? Who is this guy? And so Jesus' popularity is way high, even from beyond the Jordan River. And so massive crowds are following Jesus. That sounds funny in our day and age. You know, click follow. Yes, no, they're like literally following him. They're walking around after him. And so Jesus' popularity is its zenith. And we also learn from Matthew's gospel in chapter 14 that Jesus had just sent out the 12 and they had just come back at this time. And they had just returned. In Mark 6, by the way, and so I'm taking all these different gospels and kind of putting them into one here. Um, and Mark 6 tells us that their ministry was so intense that they didn't have time to eat. So that's what's going on. The disciples are out, they're ministering, there's persecution going on, they're going from town to town, there's such need as the disciples are going out in the name of Jesus, ministering and healing all those things. It is such a busy pace that there isn't even time to eat. And so upon them returning, upon John's death, upon, it, upon um, you know, the disciples' return, Jesus takes his disciples to the Sea of Galilee and sought to withdraw with them to an isolated place. He said, come away with me and rest. Well, I let that speak. 
And so they went to an isolated place in Galilee. And so with everything going on, that's where they are. Decided to get in a boat, go to a shore that there wasn't much going on and green grass on the hills and they just kind of isolated. There was a mountain. And back in John 6, verse 3, it says, And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Verse 4, And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. You're going to want to underline that because it makes sense at the end of the chapter. We'll come back to it. And lifting up his eyes, then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him for he knew himself what he would do. Now the answer to Jesus' question where are we going to go to buy food, is Costco. I mean, how else can you... No, it's not that. There was no Costco in the wilderness. And even if there was, 20,000 people is a lot of people, right? So he asks Philip, and by the way, there's different angles on this of the different Gospels. I think there's multiple questions going on to different disciples. John just gives the dialogue that happens with Philip, and he says, hey, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Look at Philip's answer, verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get what? A little. A, a denarii was basically a silver coin, a Roman silver coin, and according to Matthew 20, uh, basically, remember that parable of the, the laborers, the vineyard uh, laborers, when it says one got paid this day's wage, they got paid one denarii, same with the same guy at the end of the day, they got paid the same wage. Well, that's a day's wage. 200 days wages. What's that for you? 200 days wages is not enough to buy them for a little, a little bit of food. Jesus Test Philip and the other disciples by asking, where are you guys going to go buy bread to provide for these guys? By the way, Jesus is having compassion on these people who are hungry. And Philip looks at the situation, and what does he come up with? What's the answer? We can't. We can't. We don't have enough money. Nor can we get enough money. It's not happening. Verse 8. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Philip says, We don't have enough money to do this. And Andrew starts doing what a lot of us do. Well, let's find out what we do have. And I think they conscripted this kid. We don't even know who he is. They just grab him and go, well, there's someone with something. Oh, look what he has. He's got a lunch pail, little Jesus lunch pail on his thing. And like, what does he have in there? He's got five barley loaves and two fish. You're thinking of five loaves of bread. No, that's crackers. Five crackers, two fish, little boy's lunch. That's what's going on there. Andrew quickly does the math. What does he say? We have... 5,000 men. Listen, we just came back from a men's retreat. And let me say that five crackers and two fish for 70 men is an insurmountable problem. It's going to turn into the Thunderdome. It's bad. But Jesus was testing them. 
He wasn't asking them if they could figure this out, was he? What was he getting them to realize? There's no way you can do this, guys. There is no way you can do what I am asking you to do in your own means. You don't have enough money to do what I want you to do, and you don't have enough resources. The people around you do not have enough resources. This is not going to come from you. That's the first thing. The second thing, what do you think it is? They wanted him to know. Where's it going to come from? They can't do it, but he can. He can. And so the shepherd of Israel steps in, verse 10. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. And John describes the area. He says, now there was much grass in that place. First-hand account. I've been there. I've seen the hills around there certain times of year. Well, it's greener up in the north. But there's these sloping hills that go up into the mountains and on the southern side-ish. doesn't make a difference. With this grass that curves up from the surface and into the hills that jet up like 3,000 feet. So here they are in the wilderness on grass next to water. And so the man sat down, the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, it says, verse 10, verse 11. And so Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them those that, to those who were seated. And so also the fish, as much as they what? As much as they wanted. Where are we going to buy bread for these people so that they may, may eat? You cannot buy it. You cannot do this, disciples. I want you to learn this. But I can. But I can Jesus, the creator, glorifying the Father, he takes it, gives thanks, and multiplies it. The creator creates what is needed. Isn't that awesome? We often glorify the little kid whose lunch they probably stole. No, I'm just kidding. We often think this is about the kid. This is about, you know, giving, putting what you have in Jesus' hands and home multiply and all that stuff. No, this is about you don't have anything. You can't do anything. This is all him. This is all him. It is insurmountable what God is, is calling us to. It is all him. And he takes that nothingness and he multiplies it in an incredible way. John doesn't even say how he does it. It doesn't say how Jesus multiplied it. He just did. And you see, the disciples needed to know that money was not going to be the issue for the things God was calling them to. Resources were not going to be the issue in the things that God had called them to. It was who they were relying on in all these circumstances. Themselves or their creator. And Jesus takes the resources that weren't enough and multiplies them. And how much did he multiply them? How much was available? As much as they wanted. I like those situations. Like at the men's retreat. It was horrible. 
How many of you guys are like, that was as much as I wanted, and then some? And he was like, oh, man, I'm not eating. And then the fasting comes afterwards. I know. Don't, legalists, don't talk about the gluttony. I get it. But as much as they wanted, they just ate until they were full, right? Isn't that amazing? At least 5,000 men, totally stuffed. No Costco, no 200 days of labor, just the Son of God breaking bread and giving it away to all who wanted to eat, and they could eat as much as they wanted. Now, you're going, what does this mean? Do not take this to mean that God will stuff you if you have enough faith. That is not what this whole thing is about. This whole chapter is about bread, just to let you know. Jesus is setting us up for a deeper dialogue. We'll come back to that. But verse 12 says, And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be left over. You were going to want to underline that. Okay? You're going to want to underline that. You're going to want to underline the date, uh, uh, the Passover, that it was Passover. And Jesus says, Gather up the leftover fragments, that none may be lost. Either Jesus is concerned about leftovers or he's thinking of something else here. Not only was there enough bread and fish for everyone until they ate all they wanted, there were leftovers. And by the way, you know, as you make that note about none being lost, we're going to come back to that. Verse 13, so they gathered them up. What? They filled how many baskets? Twelve baskets. Each guy went out with a basket, and these are probably, they're not large baskets like in the other ones, but they're, probably have hands on them. They're full baskets of bread and fish. And Jesus says, gather them up. There was so much that Jesus provided that was leftovers. Leftovers for whom? How many baskets? Twelve. What's the context of the disciples? What had they just been doing? What did they had not time to do? What have they been doing? They've been giving themselves away. They've been pouring out their lives for the kingdom. They have been giving and laying down their lives for Jesus to the point of absolute exhaustion. Well, what about them? How are they going to be fed? How are they going to be provided for? What's going to go on? Each of these disciples needed to know that as they poured themselves out in his service, as they gave themselves away, as they lost their lives, as they sought first the kingdom and his righteousness, that they could never outgive God. All they needed was in Christ. He provided their daily bread for them, right there in front of them, out of thin air. God would take care of them practically. Some of you need to hear that this morning because you're worried about serving the Lord because it's going to cost you. Pouring out your life for Him because you're not going to have this or that or whatever it might be. What are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in, right? Listen, He's the shepherd of Israel. You think He's not your shepherd? He'll take care of you. He's not going to throw you in a Lambo, right? Hopefully. Lamborghini. 
not that, not worldly take care of. He will take care of your needs. He'll take care of your food, your clothing. He'll make sure you're okay. Take care of your family. He knows how to take care of our sheep. And even when we don't feel like we have enough, it's for a purpose and a reason to build character. And sometimes when we have too much, and this is, I think, what we deal with, is it's just a detriment to us in so many ways, to our character and a lot of those things. But the disciples needed to know that as they laid down their lives, as they left their literal families to follow Jesus, their lands, that he would take care of them. And he did. And they would find themselves in wildernesses where there was nothing around them, where there were no resources, and God would just provide what was needed for that day. Isn't it awesome that you don't have to trust in anything but Christ? That's not saying we don't work. God, of course, commands us to work. If you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't take care of your family, you're worse than a non-believer. We've got to put all these things in context, right? But there are times when the Lord just has to take care of us. He takes care of, cares of us always. Sometimes it's by providing work. Sometimes it's through the miraculous love of the body of Christ in an unexpected way, which has happened in my life continually, and God is so good, and I give him glory for that. That he will take care of you as you seek him first. Even when they are in the wilderness with nothing around them, with no resources, he's going to provide this miracle reminds me deeply of Psalm 23. Just can't help. The still waters, the green grass, the, the table that was laid before them. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And here's the big picture. He what? He restores my soul. It's not in John, it's in Mark. They were weary, they were tired. He said, come away with me. You need to rest with me. And he ministered to their soul. But notice when they got together with Jesus, what happened? People followed. And so what did they do? They poured their lives out. And God provided for them. He restores their soul. The disciples were losing their lives for his sake in Jesus. You know, even in the midst of the throngs of people that in their needs that surrounded them, he caused the disciples, along with all the others who desired that day, to lie down on green grass by still waters and have their souls restored by him as they feasted until their hearts were what? Until their stomachs were full. They were overflowing as much as they wanted. I love that. And guys, this is, this is what Jesus is getting at in this whole thing. It's not about bread. We'll get there. But they each had a basket of food, verse 14. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said what? This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So there's this back and forth. They just witnessed their creator creating dinner out of thin air. And it's not like us where we've got refrigerators stuffed with stuff and we've got, you know, freezer number two or whatever it might be, right? 
What's happening here? These people need daily bread. And they're out there in the wilderness. They're isolated. Jesus had compassion on them, the other gospels say. It was night. They had followed him. They're they're just seeking him like sheep and and, and they're, they're needing healing and help and all these things. And Jesus is just ministering to them and ministering. And it's getting night. And, 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 and the disciples are like, you've got to send these people away. It's getting late. And Jesus said, you feed them in another gospel. That's what I'm saying. There's multiple dialogues happening here between he and his 12 disciples. He says, we're going to feed these people. We're going to take care of them. They just witnessed the Lord, the Creator, do this miracle on their behalf. He had been healing them. That's why they're following Him around. And John is recording this to tell us that He is the Son of God. Look at the Creator created bread out of thin air. He can take care of things, right? And there's a bigger connection here with Moses and all this stuff. And so the, as the people, they see this sign, as they as they had been witnessing the firsthand, firsthand Jesus' ability to miraculously heal and to create food and to take care of everything, they connect it with Mo, what Moses said back in Deuteronomy 18.15, which says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so what's going on here is in the eyes of the Jews, it was Moses who provided this man in the wilderness, they knew it was God, but it was through Moses who provided this manna in this wilderness, this mystery bread that sustained them. And they're saying, they're connecting what just happened. Jesus just provided mystery bread in the wilderness for them. He's like Moses. And they're going, this is the prophet, aligned with all the healings and other things that have gone. This is the prophet It's come into the world. This is the one that Moses was talking about. They testify of, Moses testified of whom? Of Christ. And so the people called Jesus the prophet, which is a messianic prophecy, and that shows that they were anticipating, they they were looking for, they had been taught about the coming of the Messiah. They were waiting for it. John the Baptist had been speaking about it. The prophets had spoken about it. Even even the teachers of the law there were talking about this. And so, as they see this all converge in front of them, they said, man, this is the prophet, and we want to make him king. And Jesus saw in their hearts what they were about to do. He saw that they wanted to go take him by force and make him king. And this sounds like an awesome response, amen? Amen. Like, yeah, look at this. Look at everything he's doing. He's, this has got to be him. And we're going to go make him king. There was one problem. Jesus withdrew. Jesus withdrew when they tried to do this. Why is that? A lot of possible answers. Obviously, it wasn't his time yet being the main one. But later on in John 18, 33, when Jesus was being interrogated by Pilate, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus would say a few verses later, in verse 36, after some dialogue, Jesus answered, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. 
It is not of this world. Jesus did not come to be king of the Jews in the sense that he would be their king who would give them physical healing and all the food they wanted and overthrow the Romans. That was their definition of Messiah. They're going to take care of my circumstances. That's what the Messiah is going to do. He did those things and he was concerned about, well, he didn't overthrow the Romans yet, but he did you know, those things. He was concerned about people's bodies and suffering, but as harsh as this sounds, that wasn't his primary concern. And it's not his primary concern with you. Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. Jesus performed those miracles and did those acts in those days not because he was doing it to, for, so that they would make him king of this world. He was not of this world. His kingdom was not of this world. He did it to draw people out of the kingdom of man and into the kingdom of heaven. He didn't come to be crowned king of the Jews but rather to draw those out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of man, out of the kingdom of the Jews, religious Jews, so to speak, into his Father's eternal kingdom. And the problem was, as it is often with us, that they were anticipating a Messiah that would save them physically, that would save them out of their circumstances, that would heal them, that would throw off their oppressors, that would feed them until they were stuffed. How many of you are frustrated with God because he is not that Messiah? Just me. Suffering for 20-something years with physical problems. But as we will see things played out here in John, they wanted that rule, but they didn't want the spiritual rule. that God desired to have as king in their hearts, of their lives, although they were religious people, okay? They wanted a king who gave them what they wanted but demanded nothing. We've got those in office. And that is not the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, amen? They desired to forcibly make him their king, which was not God's plan at the time. Rather, one year from then, one year from them, church, Jesus would enter into Jerusalem as a humble king on a colt, right? On a donkey of some sort, right? And the crowds would cry out what? Hosanna. What does Hosanna mean? Please save. Please save. And what was ironic is that they were looking for a savior. They were looking for a king. But what were they crying out for? Save us from our sin? Save us from a lack of food? Save us from a lack of healings? Save us from the Romans? They wanted a deliverance. While Jesus came the first time for a spiritual one. And within one week of him entering in and them crying out Hosanna, they would cry out, crucify him. And he would bleed out on a Roman cross with 
a sign above his head that said what? The king of the Jews. They wanted a king that would save them, but not from their sins, from their situations. And I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't do both. But I'm saying it is not his priority. The first time Jesus came, he came to suffer and die to pay the ransom for you and for me. That we would be saved primarily from the penalty of sin which is death and eternal separation from God according to what we have done. And instead, give us righteousness, His righteousness, impute His righteousness to us and give us His eternal life by grace and, and adopt us into His ter- eternal kingdom to give us a new nature, to give us His nature. He came to save. That's what the name Jesus means. It means God saves, Jehovah saves. And perhaps you've come to Jesus for him to save you from your circumstances or from illness or from financial problems. You want him as king because you read that he can do all these things for you. He stuffs people. But even though the Lord is extremely gracious with us in these areas, and I don't want to minimize that, he is extremely gracious with us. Amen? He is a good, good shepherd, and our Father is good to us. But his priority is to save us from an eternity of suffering. That's what his primary concern was the first time he came. And is now for those who have rejected him thus far. And so his priority is to save us from our sin and to give us his life, eternal life, amen? Through faith in his death and resurrection. That you would be saved spiritually, that you would be pardoned and born again and given his life and adopted into his kingdom, that you might truly find your life by losing it. That's what Jesus came to do. And so, yes, God is concerned about all of our physical suffering in our bodies. And by the way, he will take care of that. When will that happen? Now? Sometimes a little bit if if it's his purpose, but the trend is no. Right? We're kind of... You know, we take off and like, yay. When actually when we take off from birth, we're going, oh, the whole time. And then it just gets deeper, right? That's the reality. Sorry, the cuff is definitely half empty. Whatever that one is. And so he will give us a new body. Amen. And we long for it. And all those who suffered said, Amen. My hope is not in Matt 1.0, for crying out loud, no way. It is in Jesus who will, at his word, speak and will be either transformed or raised with our new bodies that meet the spirit that he's given for us first. My hope is not in this world. Right? He will give us a new body. And in eternity, Revelation, at the end of it, he will wipe away every tear. Amen? He'll take care of your depression. He'll take care of your struggles in life. He will, he will on that day, it's going to be glorious. And that is our inheritance, our hope, is in him on that day, in that future. 
Not to saying God can't do these things now, but they point to something. The Lord came the first time to save men from sin, to save women from sin, to save sinners from sin, and to bring them into the kingdom of God so that he can rule as Lord of their life, of their heart. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be taken care of as the Lord wills. Put the Lord first, the theme of our men's retreat, right? But next time when Jesus comes, and he's going to come the next time, first time he came on a donkey, second time he's coming on a horse, he's going to come with ten thousands of his holy ones executing judgment, then Jesus will rightfully take his place as king among men on the earth. And he will rule with a rod of iron and we'll be with him for that thousand year season until his next plan unfolds, the great white phone judgment and eternity. So that new heavens, new earth. Eventually, every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Jesus left when he perceived that they would try to make him their king. Wrong kind of king. And as the other gospels tell us, he sent the crowds away. He sent his disciples to meet him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he withdrew to the mountain to pray. I'm going to stop here because I don't want to get into something else. I know you guys are like, yeah, what's going on? So John starts out with a, with a miracle of, of bread, right? This massive miracle. And then the very next thing is you see Jesus walking on the water. And then he goes back to talking about bread for the rest of the chapter. And I, we need any more time to kind of connect all those. You, you're going to want to pay attention to those verses I told you to underline because they're all going to connect everything. Think about the picture of Jesus taking and breaking the bread and giving it out through the disciples and that there being none lost. How's that going to connect with what Jesus is going to talk about the rest of the chapter? Read it. Let the Lord speak to you about what that miracle was truly about, what it was really pointing about, not you in your lunchbox. And I would say, ultimately, not even, it is the lesson for the disciples, yes, and for us, that God will take care of us, he will do all this stuff, but there's a greater picture, there's even a larger picture within that that is glorious. And that's why they wanted to kill him. And so, let's pray on that kind of, Note that's not finished. Lord, as we're kind of unresolved here in this story, we ask that this week as we, as we go, that as your word has spoken to our hearts, God, we would take in the things that you are saying to the church. Lord, it is so good that we can lean upon you and that we can lose our lives for your sake. Father, forgive us for trying to make you the Messiah that you did not come to be. Help us to have a clearer picture of what this is all about so that we might live our time on earth in a way that glorifies you, that 
that even if you choose not to provide, even if you choose to let us go on sick, which most likely you do, there is a purpose in our suffering, Father, that it would testify of you in the hope that we have in you that is sure, surer than the suffering that we are going through now. And so, Lord, we thank you that you are our shepherd, you are our provider, and we do ask, Lord, today, this week, that you would restore the souls of those who are weary in this room, that you would take them alone by yourself and they would feed upon you and there would be enough until they're stuffed with you that they would be filled that they would be their hearts would be satisfied their souls would be restored in your presence do that among your sheep lord uh, draw us to you by your grace and lord as we get into the boat this week and we start to go across and there's just an impossible situation with wind coming against us in the storms of life. Lord, may we see you walking on the water and may we invite you into our boat because we can't do anything apart from you. But Lord, it's so good to be with you. It's so good to be born into your kingdom. It's so good to be your daughter, your son, to be yours and, and to bask in your provision of everything and knowing that whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, that your good hand is upon us, Lord. And so, Lord, help us to look to the kingdom this week. Help us to see not through our own eyes and through what we've got in our pocket in everything we've got figured out, but according to what you say and help us to step into it by faith, Lord. Knowing that you will provide what is needed as we seek first the kingdom. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you this week afresh. We trust in you, Lord, and we know that you're going to show yourself strong. And Lord, um, help us with our lack of faith. <laughs> Help us, Lord. We know that you do. And so we love you. And we want to love you obediently this week, as you desire. And so we commit ourselves to you. We love you in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>